Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And Warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing... Don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, and Marcus is back. G'day, yeah. Marcus. How oh, are you? Any? Yeah, good, thanks, and yeah, morning to all the listeners out there. Good yeah. to be back. Yeah, it's good to be back, and uh, we've got a full show today. Um, I went off to uh, the Julian Assange event that they had down at um, the, uh, what they call it? They call it the, it was at the State Library, and they call it the uh, Village uh, Roadshow Theatre. So I, I presume that means that they sponsored it. But anyway, uh, Julian Assange event. Uh, it had um, Kristen Haffenson, if I've said that correct, the editor-in-chief of WikiLeaks, is in town. And you may have heard uh, his dulcet tones from uh, jo- uh, Jacob Gretsch's show, uh, A Friday Rave, which is on, on 3CR on Friday, surprisingly enough, at 5.30pm. Uh, there was also Sulette Dreyfus, technology research uh, and author, and Julian Burnside, uh, QC. He is actually part of Assange's legal team. And uh, it was uh, the panel that uh, happened after Christian had given his keynote speech was uh, run by Lizzie O'Shea, so lawyer and writer. Now, uh, I'm playing excerpts from the uh, panel and uh, we'll probably play m- more of that discussion over the summer season. If you want to hear Christian's speech, which is about 12 minutes long, tune in to Monday Breakfast because they're going to play the whole piece. But uh, I thought it was worthwhile listening to some of the things that uh, the rest of them had said. So that's why I put that piece together. Uh, We've got uh, something from Over the Wall today. Uh, we're also going to be uh, joined by David Bradbury, who's got a fantastic uh, film called Active No Choice, which is really worth l- watching, The Betrayal of West Palpua. And it's a, um, an interview with the uh, journalist who was there at the time, the Australian journalist for uh, APP, and uh, that was Hugh Lunn. A uh, very affecting piece and a uh, great piece about journalism as well. But he's going to come and talk to us about that. You've got a piece, M- Marcus, we're going to be talking to someone about. Yeah, at 8.30 we'll be talking about the event coming up on December 15 to celebrate the 1851 monster meeting of diggers at Forest Creek out uh, at uh, Tewton out in, uh, out in the west and that was there. The yeah. very first monster meeting of diggers in 1851, it preceded Eureka. Isn't that interesting? And Tewton, of course, is uh, just outside Castlemaine. So that's sort of interesting. 
um, in itself. Yeah, and that, that was the first steps to democracy, as they say, the Teuton uprising, it's um, very little known about. Yeah. So we're going to explore it today and put it back on the map. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, we'll start off then with uh, our uh, Julian Assange piece. I first met Assange in the 1990s, early 1990s, I think, when I acted for him because I was doing a lot of computer law stuff and he was charged with being a teenage hacker. And I'd totally forgotten until I met him again in 2012 in the embassy. So uh, I've known Julian for a very long time. Uh, I got to know him around 1994. We got to know each other in part because he was co-running the first free public access internet site uh, here in Australia. Uh, And it was a haven for artists and writers and activists and creatives, programmers, people who wanted to contribute things to the community. Um, And even then, he was an adamant publisher. So he would allow people to publish things on the site, uh, which were controversial and difficult, um, including uh, articles backed up by evidence about Scientology and a set of other things. Uh, And he was pretty brave. He dealt with lawyers' letters and threats uh, and and other assaults on it, uh, but he was willing to stand up for it. And then I knew him all during this period because he was very involved in the free software movement. For those of you who don't know much about the technology side of things, um, you obviously know uh, Julian Assange has got technical skills, but you may not know that for um, more than a decade he contributed an enormous amount, thousands of hours, uh, to developing free software. And in fact, for some of you who might use uh, an Apple computer, Um, there is probably free software in there by Julian Assange. So he wrote software that uh, helped to develop one of the operating systems um, of a variety of Unix. He contributed all of this labor for free. Uh, He wrote software that helped to make the news function of the um, early internet function in a more optimized way, which meant it was easier for more people to get news. Um, he, uh, he wrote, he designed and wrote, and I was part of the project, uh, that developed the first open source software uh, that was deniable cryptography file system. Um, this was envisaged to be used by human rights groups around the world. Um, it allowed you to store, for example, on a hard drive, multiple layers of encrypted files so that if human rights workers taking witness statements uh, in Guatemala... Um, about genocide uh, against um, the uh, the original peoples uh, in Cambodia, in Sri Lanka, took witness statements in rural areas and put them on these hard drives, they could add a layer of something else on the top with a different password. And if they were seized and tortured, they could give the password to that layer with very little information on it, and the other layer would never be discoverable. Um, He wrote free software available, gave it away to everyone, uh, which allowed people to test the cybersecurity robustness of their computer systems connected to the Internet. So much of this is not known um, about Julian, uh, and it's an incredible act of altruism to contribute in this free software community, but that in itself uh, was many years of work. 
now straight into it, talking about some of these recent raids on journalists in Australia. So I just wanted to remind people about this. On on June the 4th, um, uh, police conducted a raid of anarchist Smethurst's um, house, uh, which they went through her personal belongings. It was relating to a story she'd published revealing a proposal for the Australian Signals Directorate, which is um, obviously an arm of the intelligence uh, agencies, they were planning to take on an expand, expanded domestic role and that figures within government were concerned about this and that was the substance of her story which prompted then the raid. And then uh, on June the 5th, just a day later, the Sydney headquarters of the ABC were raided over a 2017 series about accusations of war crimes committed by Australia's special forces in Afghanistan. Both those stories to me seem clearly within the public interest and I think a lot of people were quite concerned about these raids being associated with those stories. I mean, it obviously raises questions about what is the right line to draw when uh, public interest journalism conflicts with the interests of the national security state, some of which may be legitimate but some of which may not be. Julian, were you surprised that these raids occurred? What do you think that they reflect generally about the state of the Australian democracy? I was surprised that they occurred and I was shocked that they occurred. And it suggests that journalism is in real trouble in this country. In fact, all of us, all of us are in real trouble in this country. I imagine not many people in this room are aware of the case of Witness J. Not Witness K with Bernard Cleary, but Witness J. Witness J served for, I think, 10 years in the armed services, in the intelligence branch of the armed services, he was then tried secretly and convicted and jailed secretly in the ACT um, for some sort of uh, intelligence offence. We're not allowed to know what it was because it's all secret. He was held, I think, 15 months in a jail in the ACT and even the ACT Attorney General did not know of his case. That's how secret it all was. Um, Witness J began writing an anonymous autobiography with all relevant names and details anonymised. Um, the federal police heard about this and executed a raid on his police cell and a raid on his home. Um, and it was only through that process that he discovered that he's the subject of a lifetime ban on saying anything at all about anything he experienced in his time with the military. Now... Open justice is a profoundly important element of any democratic society. You heard Kristen refer before to the trial of Dreyfus in France in the late 19th century, but in 1916, Sir Roger Casement was tried in London for treason, which is about as serious as it gets. It was an open trial, and you could get the transcript then. You can read the transcript now. Um, after the Second World War, look, World War, the man who was known as Lord Haw-Haw was tried for treason in an open trial. Now, if open trials were okay for them in England, why can't we have open trials in Australia? Why is it that the Attorney-General can authorise uh, suppression orders to be made by courts um, in circumstances where the national security interest is said to be at risk? Anyway... Um, the point is many people in our government have been guilty of crimes against humanity, not least because of their treatment of asylum seekers, uh, but they can't be prosecuted except with the written approval of the Attorney-General. That's part of Australia's law. 
that same Attorney-General who refuses to prosecute members of his own party or members of the opposition who are likewise guilty of crimes against humanity, that Attorney-General has power to authorise a prosecutor to ask the court for a secret trial. Now, that debases one of the most fundamental principles of the freedom of the press and the democratic system. We really need to be alarmed at the fact that the case of Witness J was possible in this country. We need to be alarmed at the fact that we have a government which introduced laws which allow the Liberal Attorney-General to apply to a court for secrecy orders in relation to any prosecution, leave aside a prosecution that involves national security interests, whatever that may mean in the particular circumstances. We really need to stand up for open justice. Otherwise, any one of you could just disappear overnight and no one would know where you'd gone. Even if you'd been taken off and tried secretly and jailed secretly, no one would be allowed to say where you were, no one would be allowed to know where you were or why you disappeared. That is very alarming. And it's something that every Australian should be alarmed about. Not just the people who are at the cutting edge of protest against the government, but every one of us. Because every one of us is capable of being that one man in the street that Kristen spoke about, that one man in the street who starts the movement. If you're that person, you better be worried because we have a government that is willing to jump on you. And I think the responsibility of every single one of us here tonight is that we should get angry at our government and at the opposition. Have you heard any Labor members opposing the fact of Witness J? Not one. Um, you need to get angry at the government, get angry at the opposition, get active to oppose these things which make all this sort of stuff possible and, as Kristen said, never give up. Never give up. Never give up. So, Sulet, I wanted to talk a little bit more about then the practice of journalism in Australia, in part because what I think these raids show and some of the issues that Julian was just talking about is that being a national security journalist or covering national security topics in Australia is a very perilous business. And I did then want to talk about what was the particular contribution of, say, WikiLeaks to this um, field um, of, of national security reporting. It's obviously WikiLeaks is a specific mode of publishing and that it does give access to source material. I wondered if you could talk a bit about that from the perspective of a journalist. So a lot of the media has focused on um, all sorts of criticisms of Julian that are uh, really strange and pedantic, small, minor things, but has missed the big picture. And that's unfortunate because if you look at the ways in which he, uh, as the editor of WikiLeaks, transformed how we receive news and information, uh, they are quite extraordinary. So the anonymous digital Dropbox, largely a WikiLeaks invention. We look around today and we see the New York Times, uh, Bloomberg Media, we see... Um, Gizmodo, for those who use it, uh, NBC, Dagbladet, Norwegian, the CBC, which is the ABC of Canada, as well as the ABC here, using anonymous digital drop boxes for whistleblowers to provide information to journalists in the public interest. That came about because of Julian Assange. Um, we see the popularized use of data set journalism, that is, taking large sets of data analyzing it and looking for patterns and trends to understand what's really happening to then tell the story. That is largely because of Julian Assange. 
um, we see the the kind of invented verification journalism. That is not just that you do the analysis with the data set, but you publish it with the story. You do that to prove to your readers the story you are telling is truthful. And that's extra important in an era of fake news. That is largely true and popularized because of Julian Assange. We see collaborative global partnerships in journalism across countries and publications on a scale that was never seen before across different companies and organizations. Some 90 plus different media organizations not in the same company, not in the same media family because of Julian Assange. And we see a popularization of cybersecurity training of journalists, um, much more widespread. I've been very active in some of it. That has largely happened because of Julian Assange. So these are all really important innovations for journalism, but it actually goes beyond that. We are sitting in a state library. Libraries are valuable archives of information. Julian Assange and WikiLeaks has created perhaps the most important archive, online library, of information, of data, around international, U.S. international public policy making and decision making, particularly around uh, war decisions, war policy, that for the modern era that exists today. And it is not behind closed walls in a private collection. It's not even inaccessible on books on a shelf. It's available to everyone, free today and searchable. And that is because of Julian Assange's vision. Uh, so I think those are all things that are really important to recognize that in their totality are extraordinary. Any one of them would have been a kind of lifetime achievement for someone who is uh, a publisher, a journalist who cares about access to public information. But all of them together provide a life's work over a decade and a half that is just exceptional. Um, Kristen, I wanted to come... Do not want to interrupt spontaneous applause. Um, Kristen, I wanted to come back to you uh, because I want you to give it to us straight. Um, Reporters Without Borders has ranked Australia's 21st in the world for press freedom in 2019, dropping two places since last year. Um, We've talked about these raids, obviously, but uh, the constitutional lawyer, George Williams, has pointed out that since September 11, 2001, we've had 75 rounds of national security legislation um, of varying degrees of seriousness for the uh, practice of national security journalism. What is our reputation abroad or what's your perspective as an outsider in terms of uh, our freedom of the press and the effect that that has on democracy? Well, what I knew about uh, the the press in this country uh, before I met Julian and uh, throughout uh, was was limited. I knew there was a a concentration of ownership, same problem we see in other territories, which of course is problematic. Uh, I learned about... uh, you know, the usual uh, attempt to uh, stifle public broadcaster through uh, strangling or limiting the blood flow, blood flow, basically through budgetary cuts. Uh, that is a problem that is occurring everywhere, seeing that as a pattern. Um, I think that, uh, that uh, the press freedom in, uh, in Australia, as observed by, uh, by uh, other 
nations is that it is uh, relatively okay. Uh, I was actually stunned to learn just recently about uh, all these legal actions that have been taken against uh, uh, press freedom and civil liberties in this country, 70-plus legislation since, since the turn of the century, since 9-11, basically. Uh, so I was a bit surprised to get to know the, 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 the serious situation or the level of, uh, of, uh, of uh, the limitations that the press in Australia have to deal with. Uh, but I also want to say that, uh, that uh, you see that in, in other countries as well. Uh, press freedom is under attack all over the world. Uh, and uh, the attack on journalists are happening in 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 in, uh, in every country on a more regular basis than before, and partly the the raids here this summer were possibly a pattern that you could link to the arrest of Julian Assange on April 11 in that uh, uh, disgraceful manner than when he was arrested and dragged out of the embassy. I believe that 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 event emboldened those who want to crack down on press freedom. I think there's a link between what happened there and what happened here in June. I think there's a link between what happened to Julian and the attacks on, on journalists in, in Brazil, where journalists like Grant Greenwald might face prosecution and arrest. There have been arrests in the United States as well. I was at the Bundestag in Germany uh, just two days before flying to Australia, and I heard of cases, very worrisome cases, in European countries. So this is a universal thing, and it's all linked together. This is a concentrated attack on press freedom all over the world. And when one uh, government takes steps like here in Australia, it sends a signal. It sends a signal it's okay. So, that's, so it's, a, it's like a virus. It will spread. So we have to fight back now before everything is lost. Very important we do that. I, I think it's worth adding to that. Uh, if what Julian Assange did was a problem, let's be candid, back when, he, when WikiLeaks published that stuff about what had happened in Iraq, not many people were getting news from WikiLeaks. The reason all of us heard about it was because of the Murdoch press. The, the Murdoch press republished the juicy bits. Now, no one is going after Rupert Murdoch saying he's a criminal. No one is trying to extradite him to anywhere or prosecute him for anything. What is it that Assange has done that Murdoch didn't do, apart from the fact that he brought it to the attention of fewer people? Now, I think that's the thing you need to take real account of if you're concerned about freedom of the press. The press is sort of selectively free. You know, if you're a big mogul, then you can do or say what you like. America is trying to extradite Assange from Britain right now on espionage charges which do not attract the First Amendment defence. The First Amendment defence, you'll recall, became very important for Daniel Ellsberg in connection with Watergate because although the original material had been leaked illegally, and the leaking it no doubt was a criminal offence, the publication of it was said by the Supreme Court of the US not to be a criminal offence because of the First Amendment. Now, 
If that's right, we ought to be outraged that the American government is now trying to extradite him to America. And as Kristen said, it will amount to a life sentence. He faces the prospect of dying in jail over there. And let's not be coy about this. Um, the, the person who leaked the material to him, who's now known as Chelsea Manning, has recently been thrown in jail by grand jury, placed in an all-male jail by the authorities. Now, if that's not an indication of where America's going, I don't know what else is. We really need to be very worried about the state of journalism and the risk at which journalists stand. Julian Assange is a great illustration of that. Uh, he shouldn't be. He doesn't deserve it. Um, I think I'd be less animated about this if Rupert Murdoch was facing the same fate. Uh, but even even for him, even for him, I would say his rights need to be defended and Assange's rights need to be defended and your rights need to be defended because what is happening to journalism across the West puts all of us at risk. We are actually, we are seeing with cases like Witness J and the treatment of Assange and Australia's total indifference to it, we are seeing... Australia developing into a kind of, um, what, what should I say? I was going to say autocracy, but a dictatorship, something like that. Um, and it's very worrying. It should concern every single one of you. And that was from the uh, event recently about uh, Julian Assange. And as they were saying, uh, Marcus, uh, there's becoming a, a groundswell across Australia uh, regarding Julian Assange and the fact that our government is sitting on its hands. Yeah, I mean, they should be helping one of their own citizens. If they can't help one of their own, who are they going to help? Exactly. he's been there, hold yeah. up overseas for bloody years. And they, as they were saying, uh, he's actually... Uh, there was a charge that he jumped bail. Now, he's stayed in jail for that length of time, that uh, particular charge. Uh, and he's been kept in the highest security uh, jail in England. Uh, he is being uh, maltreated, effectively. And uh, our government is part of the responsible agents that are allowing that to happen. And, of course, he's a journalist, so if, if they're picking on him now, who are, the, who are they going to come for next? What journalists are they going to come for next? Exactly. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Marcus, and we're going to move on to Not My Debt. This is our uh, over-the-wall feature. Welcome to Over the Wall on Solidarity After Breakfast. And Over the Wall began on 3CR a couple of years ago and our focus has always been on doing shows that provide information for people on low income. And we've been particularly comprehensive about covering the robo-debts issue with many interviews with the Not My Debt campaign site across the years. Pleased to say that coming next week on Thursday I'll be doing another interview with Lindsay, the director of the Not My Debt campaign group, to provide listeners with the latest information from Legal Aid regarding their rights after the recent changes regarding robo-debts and the challenges against the legality of robo-debts by the individual court case and also the class action that's being launched. 
It's been a great success that the onus of proof is now being placed back upon the government department to prove a debt and not just upon the recipient that receives a debt. But how this plays out in actuality over the coming months, we need to keep a very close eye on this, listeners, and that's why we'll be speaking regularly again with Lindsay from the Not My Debt campaign. Let's now hear Lindsay's advice upon accessing the Not My Debt campaign website and your legal rights around robo-debt. This is a public service announcement. Lindsay starts by discussing how Centrelink's robo-debts began. We started to see people talking about issues with getting these debts from Centrelink, not really understanding or having information as to where they'd come from or why they'd been issued. And the debts were going back years, so people were being asked to go back and get payslips from five or six years ago. And lots and lots of people saying that they'd also had these debts. But there didn't seem to be much cohesion around collecting really solid information about what was going on. And it really got my interest. And I just can't see which organisations or bodies are going to really be able to pull this information together quickly so that people can figure out what's going on. And so through that, I offered to build a campaign website and start to create a movement and a discussion about this together. And we started to collect stories about people that were affected by this. A whole bunch of people started to receive these letters. Yeah. Um, So what we found from the Senate inquiry was that people were just getting these contacts from debt collectors saying you've got this huge Centrelink debt. And for so many people, it had been years since they were on Centrelink. And so all of a sudden, they're, they're starting to be harassed and hounded. And it just really added to the frustration and the harm for people, really. And here they are lumped with thousands of dollars worth of debt that they can't explain. There was one case that was shared with us where five years ago, a couple on an age pension got an inheritance payout. They reported that to Centrelink and have had no troubles with it. And and from their understanding, everything that they reported was fine and that there were no issues. And now five years later, the automation has triggered that there is an issue and that there's a debt to be raised. And that's not the first time that I've seen an account of something where someone has reported something and there's been no action on it for years and years and then the automation of the system has triggered a debt from it. So it's incredibly confusing because people think five years ago that they're doing the right thing and that's the common thread throughout this. People understand that at the time they've reported fairly and accurately and they've done all of the things that they've needed to do. They've provided the paperwork at the time and yet five, six, seven years later, they're they're being hit with a debt. And then they're also being asked to resubmit paperwork that they also had believed that the system should have. So it's really confusing and it's really onerous as well. The OCI Automatic Robo-Debt Scheme was originally flagged in the 2014 budget and passed in the 2015 budget. And the projections over the forward estimates of money raised by the OCI automated system is billions of dollars. And listeners, that's money raised by taking from pensioners, the unemployed and the recently unemployed, people who aren't wealthy. The numbers are really troubling. 
So the first stage of it was to get around about $300 million. That was the first projections that were coming through in the budget and that was for people that were no longer on Centrelink. So that's been the first round that we've seen. And then the next phase of that is age pensioners to start doing that same sort of algorithm matching for age pensioners. And that's projected to reap in a billion dollars. So that's three times the amount of revenue these forward estimates were projecting were going to come in. And you roll that out to $4 billion of revenue, it's a huge amount of people that are being affected. And what we don't know is the actual revenue that has been raised. The department hasn't released those figures. You know, how is it just to be issued with a debt that the onus isn't on the department to clearly explain and provide all of the information that an individual needs to comfortably know that they owe this money? And people are really concerned and now they're starting to be concerned for their parents and and how their parents are going to be able to push back against a system that's really quite stretched as well. So people are being told to phone Centrelink to provide information or upload documents into a system and you know some people have just had such difficulty going back five years to get pay slips from their employers. Taking points from not my debt suggestions of what should be done, the first point you make is that you should keep a diary of all interactions and collect receipt numbers. Yeah, and, you know, again, we've had accounts of people where they have asked for receipt numbers through Centrelink and they've been denied that. So that's been difficult. And also the app has been disabling the ability for people to be able to take screenshots. So then photos of the screen or any information that you can get. But definitely document everything down, document who you're talking to and any steps that you're taking. Second point you make on the website is to not ignore the letter. Yeah, and that was something that people were doing, especially in the early stages, again, because they hadn't received Centrelink for years and they hadn't had anything to do with it. So there was sort of this feeling that it was sort of an automated system letter and it didn't apply to people so they didn't have to worry about it. That was really common early on. They just believe this is going to be an error that will go away and yeah, you can't. It's something that you need to address and to start a process. And then once people are in that system, then they're being asked to confirm information about how much they earned during that period of time that is part of the, depending on the answers there, that's part of the process that is then triggering this debt. It'll say that there's been some sort of discrepancy or that the department needs further information as it's referring people to go to MyGov to log in there and, and people don't know what the outcome of that's going to be. And now with some of the, the changes that they've made, if there's a debt that's calculated, there's a screen that's asking people to accept that debt at the time. Um, and so I think one of the things to be really mindful of is that just because you've clicked on yes I accept this is a debt because you you haven't been sure on what to select you do have the right to appeal these debts Between November 2016 and January 2017 the Ombudsman's Office received an 87% increase in complaints from the public about issues with Centrelink 
Stay tuned in coming weeks for more information about Centrelink's robo-debts and how you can better cope with this. In the meantime, I suggest you search notmydebt.com.au. This is Ari Lecker. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up one talks. And you're back on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Marcus. And we've been joined in the studio by a revolutionary filmmaker, I think, David Bradbury. How are you, David? Good, Annie. Yep. And... uh, do you want to say something, Marcus? Oh, I, do, I remember David, yeah, from Canberra back in 2014. The uh, Waging uh, War yeah. on Peace, was it? Yeah. Uh, documentary, yeah. It was Waging Peace. Waging, waging Peace, yeah. 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 <laughs> waging Peace. Because <laughs> that's one thing about uh, uh, David's films. He always has great titles. Mm-hmm. And the uh, film that he's uh, plugging at the moment is called Act of No Choice, The Betrayal of West Palpua. Can you, uh, as I was saying to Marcus earlier, that it's not just a film about West Palpura, it's about journalism as well. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, what made you, what it's about and why? Well, I've always been fascinated coming through uh, into filmmaking via journalism 40-odd years ago when I first came into the the game. And uh, I was fortunate back then to be mentored by, first of all, Neil Davis and uh, then Wilfred Burchett. And, oh, uh, the great Wilfred Burchett. Yeah, yeah. And he was mentioned the other night at uh, Julian Assange's uh, rally or forum, you may recall about. Yes. Uh, it wasn't mentioned him by name, but Kristen, the uh, WikiLeaks um, uh, chair, mentioned this uh, one one person can make a difference. And he mentioned that this... Uh, this uh, unnamed correspondent who went to Hiroshima and reported on the... Uh, the he went one of, way and everybody else went the other. Yeah, the 239 <laughs> other embedded journalists uh, did what General MacArthur, the US Army, told them to do. He put the rest of... MacArthur put the rest of, uh, of uh, Japan off limits and Wilfred feigned um, a, a gut pain or, you know, and sickness and uh, he took a, a train 400 miles inland... Imagine the guts of that, Annie, 400 yeah. miles inland. The very day the surrender ceremony is being signed, the Japanese nation, the Imperial Guard officers who were on that train being demobbed with their big samurai swords and their little daggers at their side and the train plunged into darkness. And we went on that bullet train at 200-odd kilometres an hour. This was a steam train puffing its way through these long tunnels. And Birchett was in military fatigues or the American uniform because that's what foreign correspondents had to wear those days that were embedded in the Pacific campaign. And it wasn't John Wayne that he was trying to emulate before John Wayne was <laughs> even known on the on the silver screen. He took a forty five with him to shoot himself rather than be tortured by the Japanese uh, officers if they did grab him and, 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 and do what they were doing to other Americans, prisoners of wars and Australians in the Japanese prisoner of war camps then. 
and he risked everything to go to uh, to Hiroshima to find out what that new bomb was all about. And he did indeed do that. And um, yeah, it wasn't very uh, happily received by the American uh, military and um, press attaches at all. But Wolford got that word out. And I think... Uh, well, it's a classic, it's a classic case of... Uh, Things don't exist unless they're recorded. And, and reported uh, on. Yeah, and the whole idea that Hiroshima and the results of that bomb uh, uh, would not be recorded seems bizarre, doesn't it? And mm. in the same... Well, the American military, as with, as everywhere, whether it's Afghanistan today, whether it's uh, uh, Iraq or you know Somalia or wherever they've got their finger in the pie, they don't want it to be reported and they learnt that from the Vietnam War when for one moment journalists and filmmakers or cameramen and still photographers are able to jump on a helicopter onto a DC-3 and go to the back blocks where the war was. And that's what, as you know, stopped the war effectively because Americans were seeing their boys being killed by the, by the, you know, the, the, the plane load and, uh, and, and then the, when the American embassy was ta- attacked in downtown Saigon, that was it. The, the war turned around, and uh, they, the American military establishment learned a lot from that. From from that, there well, so much so that well, we... Hugh Hugh Lunn, uh, who is the subject of this particular film, and his his uh, um, voice is talking about. He was the journalist who mm. was at. He was uh, the Wilfred Birch at the uh, of West Papua. Mm, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I stumbled upon Hugh because I was doing some research about uh, for a drama <coughs> about um, about the disappearance of Michael Rockefeller in Dutch New Guinea, and I, and I knew that uh, Hugh had, had had covered that, but I didn't until I actually sat down and recorded him <coughs> how incredibly courageous his integrity in, in defying <coughs> his own uh, news agency's orders, Reuters of London to go, in fact, and cover a blind press conference around Asian capitals that Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger had put on at the time to take the world's media away from the events of what were happening in eight provincial capitals of West Papua at the time of the so-called act of free choice. And the Yanks had done that deliberately because they didn't want the media to be there to see what a sham it was, to see what the Indonesian military were doing with their secret police in obliging 1,025 hand-picked West Papuans at the time when it was supposed to be a universal suffrage of all people of voting age. In fact, only 1,024, one person didn't turn up. It was sick. And uh, these poor hapless West Papuans were obliged in public to stand up at the point of a gun and put their hands up very haplessly saying, yes, we want to be incorporated into independence. When in fact outside and in these voting halls of eight provincial uh, capitals around West Papua in 1969, uh, all the people were clamouring for independence and they didn't want to go with Indonesia. It's and so had shameful. seven years of, of, of being you know, basically ruled over by the Indonesian military and they knew what that meant. That meant torture, it meant rape, it meant murder and being thrown and into prison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Everything about it is so, it's so uh, callous and uh, destructive. As, and the role of the UN, the role of uh, the uh, Javanese 
Uh, I know it's called the Indonesians, but they appear. So really, it's the Javanese, Javanese that are running the show in to this day. Yeah, the Javanese are running the show in Indonesia, the archipelago, and so on. And it's so sad to think that Australian unions at the time in 1947, when when Sukarno was coming to power, the Australian Union stopped the Dutch uh, shipping arms to uh, their army in Indonesia and the, what was called the Dutch East Indies so that the um, the Dutch couldn't, in fact, uh, overcome uh, Sukarno and his freedom fighters. And now we've got a situation for the last 50 years where the independence freedom fighters, both of the gun and, and non-violent means in West Papua, are ruled over by these very vicious, very um, money-grubbing, greeting uh, uh, Javanese generals. And violent, so violent. Uh, the... Uh uh, Hugh Lun was 25 when this happened, and he actually left Vietnam to go to West Papua or to Indonesia, thinking that it was going to be a quiet posting. posting. Yeah, uh, because with, he'd been nearly killed a number of times in yeah. in Vietnam at the height of the war, and uh, he did. He had four friends, including the two correspondents that came from Melbourne. Uh, Bruce Piggott, and I've forgotten the name of the other journo that were over there, and he'd had enough after 13 months of seeing the bloodletting and what the American uh, imperial system, for want of a better word, led to, and he didn't want to be a casualty. But he, uh, yeah, he showed incredible courage, and as he calls in the in the film, it was his year of living dangerously, 1969, going to Jakarta, thinking it was going to be, you know, the the tail end of the world, and he could kick back and that. And was it a cocktail it, it, party? It, yeah, you put it in perspective, you know, 1969, you think about it, as he points out, the Americans were put uh, walking on the moon. Yeah. And, and West Pub was being sold stole- to slavery at the same time as great propaganda exercise. Oh, we put a man on the moon, aren't we good? And one giant step for mankind and the orchestrated words that uh, Neil Armstrong was given to, to read out to a listening world. And uh, on the ship where uh, Hugh was listening to that on his little little radio with some locals there, they were so excited themselves. And then naively I thought, as I said to Hugh, ah, one day maybe we might be able to do that as well. And to this day they're still in modern-day slavery, as I say. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. And also the business, that, uh, indiv- how individuals like Hugh Lunn did what he did but others who knew what was happening, the people that were part of the UN group, the young American, the older American, the, the Bolivian poet that led it, Dr. Ortiz Sanz. Yeah, yeah they, they were shameful. Totally, totally. Absol- they sold a whole generation of people. Uh, you know, the, I mean, you'd say the, the, the level of blood is so extreme. Mm. Uh, that that is on the hands of uh, Western powers. Mm. But, I mean, we all have an obligation, as we do with Julian Assange, as Australians. It's our nearest neighbour. It's, you know, you know, a cigarette butt throwaway from the uh, the Australian mainland to, to West Papua. And yet we know more about the dark side of the moon than we do about what's happening in West Papua today. And, yeah, it's still illegal for them to fly their flag of independence, the Morning Star flag. 15 years jail if you fly the Morning Star in Indonesia. And And the secreting away of people and it's just, it's, and stealing of their land. Uh, 
it's it's everything about it's disgraceful. Uh, the only thing that's quite amazing uh, is that people continue to fight. Mm. Um, well, that's not amazing. It's what people need to do. And what's happening is but so terrible. we're not terrible. doing it here in, in Australia, Annie. We're mm. the creeping face of fascism, quasi-fascism coming. And I use that, that term quite you know, guardedly because you know, words are powerful. And I know we're on a, a radical uh, station that's quite sort of, you know, it's a community that those listening to us, are, uh, a lot of them are activists and so on. But I make no bones about it. We are, as Julian Burnside said the other night at the Julian Assange rally, we are in a quasi-fascist state already and the program that just you know screwing workers over you know sort of the centrelink payments got to be paid back there the suppression of of the media and raids on uh, on even murdoch uh no straight journalists are, are being raided and so on they're so outraged the abc and that the the system believes you know, morrison government and co that's come through from john howard times believe they can and they are getting away with it yeah, that's right. A big pushback required. Now, this film, uh, a great film, act, uh, very tight. You're a great filmmaker. You're very tight. I love the way you uh, – there's a couple of things. Hugh Lund must have loved the fact that you came to talk to him. He did. Yeah, he did. And he's a, you know, a wonderful man and uh, nearly 80 now. And uh, and it's you could tell as he came cl- – close to tears and this man that had recovered so much and was so strong on the one hand his sensitivity was such that um you know he's still after 50 years you know it's not he okay. wears his heart on his sleeve but not sort of you know in any other and then a very humane and compassionate way to know that uh what he's reporting what he risked his neck for in fact fell largely on blind uh, blind ears Around blind ears, <laughs> <laughs> a mixed metaphor there. We've got any, haven't we? Yeah. Though, but yeah, but they are. Maybe the title for the next film. You say I've got the titles, and that maybe I'll sort of yeah, work on that one. Yeah. Anyway, but it's going to be screened, and people should go and li- and uh, watch it tomorrow at uh, the the Rent West Papua and Rent Collective, which is on eight thirty eight Collins Street in uh, in Docklands there, and. Uh, the West Papuans Women and Solidarity Supporters are putting on a good lunch at one o'clock, fifteen bucks, which will go towards the West Papuan uh, cause. And then the film starts at two o'clock itself. I'd get there though; there's only about seventy seats, so I'd I'd get there pretty early. I'm hoping that there's going to be a good turnout for uh, mm-hmm. for this afternoon and a celebration and determination to put West Papua's cause further on the map in in Melbourne town.
we're back on Solidarity Breakfast. And uh, Kevin, you're alive today. I'm still alive. Yes, I am. It's, um, hang on, I'll just take my pulse. Yes, I am. I'm alive. Um, look, a couple of brief things. Um, David mentioned 69. In 69, I went up to Bougainville. I was so angry oh. about the way we were bulldozing people off their land to give it to a British-based mining company then called Consangrio Tinto. And they have finally had their independence vote. And um, let's hope the people of West Papua get it much more quickly than that. But... Uh, the other point, up front of the show, you mentioned Tutin, and I think it's worth, in the current climate around China in Australia, it's worth mentioning that um, the derivation of the name Tutin from the gold rush days was actually called Chowstown. Oh, really? Um, which um, Means which Chinese reflects, people. Well, it certainly reflects the fact that from the time of white um, invasion of this country, we've always suspected the other, haven't we? Um, yeah. It's pretty dreadful. Anyway, the sweet that was. Uh, a week solidarity, Bricky Team Lister, when I don't want to be in, this to be an endorsement of the pejorative Dan government, but there's been this ongoing investigation into a developer in the Outer East, allegedly corrupting a number of local councillors and state MPs and candidates to support his developments, caring business class councillors and MPs and candidates, with the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin mentioning their party affiliations only when it was impossible to ignore. And then, manna from heaven, they discovered the developer had also donated to some socialist party campaigns and had dined with the pejorative Dan. Suddenly, P1, tell all, Premier, and the caring business class state supremo, whose name no one can remember, whose party is the only one implicated thus far, at least in the corruption allegations, screamed, this is a government that is politically compromised. Uh, uh, right. Even less endorsement of one notions that appalling Hoonson, who came under attack from big supremo scuttled them more son, the Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Christian Portable Profits, Finance Profits Minister Matthias Rotten to the et al., which means for maybe the first time ever, she must have done something good, to paraphrase one of my favourite songs from The Sound of Music. Under attack for voting against the Smash the Evil Unions bill, she ratted on her word they charged, and that lot would be so distressed that someone could rat on their word, prompting that appalling to counter in her usual articulate way, people can trust me more than they can trust the government, which forces us to think about it. Tough one, but yeah, possibly that appalling by a short half head. Not sure her decision had much to do with integrity, but interesting how we can interpret the same language in different ways. For instance, the whopping sin and others call it the union-busting bill and mean it as a positive. A shattered scuttle then said, seriously, direct quote, that a feat of the smash evil union's busting bill meant, and talk about injustice, bankers face tougher penalties than union thugs. Oh no, how can bankers facing 23 million charges of money laundering, including child pornography, face tougher penalties than an evil union thug demanding a workplace be made safe and likely using foul language, the language of thugs? No integrity legislation needed for the sophisticated bankers. They utilise nothing more criminal than a pen. Yet, True to form, that out-of-control socialist supremo and would-be big supremo, Anthony All-Being-Uzi, claimed the bill was work choice as light, 
which we'd have to disagree with despite our high regard for Anthony's integrity. Surely it's work choices heavy, work choices plus. This Israel Falau the Lord business, absolutely no idea why he deserved one cent, let alone millions, but on the ABC's Religion and Ethics report, this good Christian woman defending his right to religious freedom told us there was nothing violent in what Israel said and keeps saying. And I thought, which bit of eternity in the fires of hell is not violent? I had very unchristian thoughts of violence an hour or so later watching the news report on former trained killer Jackie Lumpen sentencing no proper papers, queue-jumping illegal boat people to death, joining Scuttle Them, his successor as Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Constable Peter Duffer, that appalling Hoonson and the team in declaring those seeking refuge have no right to health care. Then the report crossed immediately to scuttle them and a couple of his mob, plus Anthony Albing Uzi, Penny Left Wing and a couple of other socialist fighters for the working class, having a great time together around a Chrissy tree, exchanging presents and wishing each other a happy and holy, laughing their heads off, great mates expressing goodwill, and all that immediately after condemning people fleeing persecution to even more persecution. Many of them fleeing true blue Aussies invasions of their countries are carried out by deep-thinking train killers like Jackie Lumpen. Speaking of faith, doesn't it reinforce our already great faith in the socialists to see them sharing bonhomie with the executioners? But in fairness, scuttle them's true love thy neighbour, dear baby Jesus humanity, Sean, when asked about a true blue Aussie citizen, it is claimed as being mistreated in a Chinese prison. Look, we always have to stand up for our citizens and we have to be true to who we are as a people. Beautiful settlement, Scuttle. Them. I, I missed uh, who you were talking about. I assume it's Julian Assange? Except, of course, when it would be wrong to stand up, right to be true to who we are. We must strike a proper balance between our very, very close friend, the US of the UN of the US of the world, and evil, evil China. Uh, but 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 that's it's our biggest trading partner, and let me say in that context, and only in that context, it's good China. As this state introduces an industrial manslaughter law to it, to its credit, Queensland has an industrial manslaughter law that can send caring employers to jail for murdering or sorry manslaughtering workers. And to its credit, the biggest killer of workers, the coal industry, the resource industry, convinced the government it could be exempt from the law because it argued the existing law was adequate to cover it, but apparently not anyone else. Uh, when you say adequate, we asked former Resources Minister, now Industry Spokesperson Ian McFarton. Uh, when we say adequate, we mean adequate to keep us out of jail. And I raise this because on background briefing on the ABC this week, Ian was asked whether the industry had done a deal with the government to get out of jail, so to speak, as the number of deaths and injuries in coal, mining, coal mines increases. We don't do political deals, 
Ian said, presumably with a straight face, because it was on radio, I couldn't see it. And who for one moment would think they do? But the problem for Ian and his killer clients now being they've killed so many workers, the government is moving to include them under the manslaughter law. Not that we're holding our breath waiting for the boardrooms of resource and coal corporations who never go anywhere near the danger zone being dragged off to jail for killing those who enter the danger zone every day. Paul Regan has a real problem with the new legislation. The government has not allowed enough time for consultation, he complained. Um, what do you need to consult on, Ian? Not going to jail. Um, and how much time should they allow? Uh, 30 or 40 years would be reasonable. But let's move on to the really important things in life. In that critical battle, we also care about the annual telly ratings. C9 has knocked off seven for the top spot. And the They Must All Be Brain Dead Award of the Week to all those viewers who did nine a favour. For the winner put its success down to those intellectually challenging cultural icons, Married at First Sight, Ninja Warrior and Lego Masters. <laughs> We've got to worry. Although it probably helps explain in microcosm our election results, turning the anaesthetised brain dead loose with a pencil in their hands. I know the Americans have a bit of trouble with the English language, as Henry Higgins uh, sang, or what pastors Rex Harrison singing. In America, they haven't used it in years. And some Republican poly proved the point this week, attempting to defend his big supremo. The president did nothing wrong. He slaughtered the language. And they can't prove it, <laughs> which of course literally means they can't prove he did nothing wrong. So perhaps he made their case for them. If he's a lawyer and someone said, this grammatical idiot's going to defend you, I think I'd plead guilty and throw myself with the mercy of. Mention important things in life, but what could be more important than the meaning of life itself? And driven by the love of the dear baby Jesus, Scuttle then revealed the truth, the great revelation, the meaning of life as he slashed the bloated, inefficient hand of the public sector, knowing the lean, mean hand of the private sector is far more efficient, meaning billions will now spend on efficient consultants from the usual suspect great corporations to do what the inefficient have been doing will be money well spent. If we want more proof, just ask the great corporations and they'll affirm it. Uh, but but I, I divert. The meaning of life is the meaning of education, what we teach the next generations about life, and Scuttle Them's changes reflect this. Education is about what the caring business class needs at any given time. Life is about working for the caring business class and nothing else. Indeed, many courses that contribute nothing to being a better, more flexible, more agreeable worker, which do nothing more than provide knowledge and useless information like history or literature or the arts or language, unless that's needed for a particular job. And for goodness sake, they might resort to working class history, for instance, heaven forbid, should be banned. All we need to know to know the meaning of life is the skills they require us to have. So thank you, Scuttle Them, for revealing the meaning of. Thank you, big economic guru Josh Friedem Icebergs, for clarifying the economy needs us to practice the meaning of life until we drop. And thus, finally, we all live happily ever after. Good morning. I am not in love. 
but I'm open to persuasion. When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. Yeah, back on uh, Solidarity Breakfast and... Uh, Marcus? Yeah, this morning we're joined by Pat Healy from uh, Chewton. Uh, welcome to the program, Pat. Oh. Hello. Welcome to the program, Pat. Right. I'm really looking forward to talking to you about our monster meeting okay. uh, celebration. So on uh, Tuesday earlier this week, we celebrated the 165th anniversary of the Eureka Rebellion. Um Sunday week marks the anniversary of a pivotal moment in Australian democracy. Can you tell us what occurred on that day, December 15, in 1851? Yeah, well, you know, most people know about Eureka. Very few people know about the 1851 diggers when 15,000 gold diggers defied the government and said, no, we won't pay anymore for our gold licences. It was the first Australian mass protest meeting and it started off, it set in motion the conflicts that went throughout the goldfields and ended up at Eureka. And it was in Chewton that the gold rush began and Governor Latrobe attempted to stop the gold rush. What, what were his uh, oh, reasons? Yeah. Oh, he didn't want um, uh, his uh, nice colonial aristocratic uh, society overturned by working-class people uh, making lots of money and forgetting uh, their place in the social status. And uh, he was terrified of the gold rush, so he uh, put in uh, a, a license system, 30 shillings a month, whether you found gold or not, and that was a lot of money in 1951. Um, and then he tried to double it because, uh, you know, people just kept going on the gold rush. Um, and he tried to double it to 60 shillings a month, which was just a huge amount of money. And uh, they said, uh, no, no, mate, I'm not going to pay. So and- on December 15, 1851, the monster meeting occurred and the diggers uh, flew their new flag. Can you de- describe the flag for the listeners? Ah, uh, yeah. Blue and red and white and black flag. It's got four corners on it. It's, uh, it's a cross, kick and shovel for their labour. It's the, um, a bundle of sticks tied together to show that um, a single twig may be broken, but a bundle will not bend or break. It's got the scales of justice, that's what they were asking for, and the kangaroo and the emu for Australia. Um, and these were, you know, these were people from um, all over Australia. You know, it, 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 the city's emptied, <laughs> because um, they, went on, they went looking for gold. I and mean, this is the beginning of the huge gold rush in Victoria, where enormous amounts of gold were found here in Chewton. Um, uh, you know, look... 25,000 people were here in Chewton within three months of the discovery of gold. Okay. And the, that. And the diggers, yeah. they understood the key principle that their strength lay in unity. It's a key ah, principle yes. of the trade union movement today. That's right. That's, that was the thread. That was what they started. They became capital D diggers. They turned from just a whole lot of men digging up gold into a unified movement of men who understood 
that their strengths lay in unity. Um, and uh, as you say, that's the thread that went through, right through to the trade union movement. And it's a thread that went through all the conflicts in the goldfields, right through to Eureka, where, you know, they, they knelt down and, and uh, pledged unity to each other and to their flag. And the Eureka uh, Rebels. Again. Sorry, the Eureka yep. Rebels took an oath of allegiance. Did the Forest Creek uh, diggers have something similar? No, they didn't, because look, this was the very beginning of the protest movement of the diggers. But they were quite, they were quite unified, and they were quite determined. I mean, these were guys who had, had no vote; they had very few civil rights, but they understood that their strengths lay in unity, and they just said, "No, we're not going to pay." And by the time um, you got a couple of years later, uh, 1853, the Red Ribbon Rebellion in Bendigo, um, they basically said, no, we're not going to pay 10 shillings. We're not going to pay 30 shillings. And the government, they had caved in by this stage because they realised that you couldn't, um, you couldn't arrest thousands upon tens of thousands of diggers. I mean, the courts just wouldn't cope. <laughs> so, yeah, they won. But it was the unity of the men that won. And we all know the names of the Eureka rebels, such as uh, Lawler and Caboni. Have the uh, diggers' names from Forest Creek been passed on through the generations? Oh, not really, no. Because, it, look, it was just a sort of a movement of people who, who you know, um, that, look, there were leaders. There was Captain Harrison um, in particular. He was a very charismatic leader. Um, and there were Potts, uh, Mr Potts. Uh, and there was, uh, yeah, Webb, uh, Webb, who was a, a doctor. Um, and they were mainly chartists who were concerned about, you know, having one person, one vote and trade union rights. That came from the chartist movement um, uh, in England and uh, Ireland. And there was a letter in the Argus just described uh, what happened at the mass meeting. Well, yes, the, the Argus reporter was there, and he actually recorded the whole of the meeting. I, I don't know how he did it. He must have been very good at at, uh, um, at uh, uh, shorthand. Um, and he, uh, he he just recorded all the speeches, which were pretty fiery. Um, and, uh, but the, the thing that started it off was a letter in the Argus on the 8th of, of, uh, 8th of September where a bloke called um, Wally, who was a shepherd, on a, on a sheep run, discovered gold. And uh, he went off to the bloke who, uh, who was uh, in charge of the uh, run, bloke called Barker, and said, look what I found. And Barker what a said, fool. Stop that immediately. Stop it. No, yeah, yeah, no, what a fool. Gold. He shouldn't have told him. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Barker threatened to, you know, call the police, trespass and all that sort of thing, which he couldn't do. Um, so Wally thought, I'll have you, mate. And uh, he sent a letter to the Argus that said, I found gold. It's uh, three miles from uh, Mr Barker's house and one mile in from the road. And it's like a big, you know, X on the back, <laughs> inviting people to come up and, you know, dig for gold. And, of course, Melbourne just emptied. <laughs> people headed up to, uh, to Forest Creek. And, of course, when they get, got there, they discovered the, sh- the richest shallow alluvial goldfield ever discovered. And that was it. It was on for one and old after that. And the place just flooded with people. Um, and of that 25,000 people there by early December, 15,000 of them were at the monster meeting. And? Uh, you know, calling for people to come. And there was no printing press or anything. Uh, this was all by word of mouth and posters on trees and things like that. And they said, buy on Tuzalanimity. 
which means don't be gutless. <laughs> and in recent times, the Tutan community has kept that monster uh, meeting spirit alive in uh, a few local oh, campaigns. Yes. Oh, yes. Uh, we stopped the council from closing our swimming pool. We stopped the council from closing... Or we, we stopped the government from closing our post office. Uh, we stopped the uh, roads, uh, uh, Vic Roads, from straightening out our road and we're rock- knocking down our... Uh, our uh, Heritage listed um, uh, uh, town hall, and uh, you know, it just well, they're going to do that. They're going, they're going to oh, get yeah. to straighten oh, yeah. the road, huh? <laughs> oh, Vic Roads is a rule unto itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah but we stopped them, and we we got a fifty kilometre uh, an hour, fifty kilometre hour uh, road uh, in uh, through Chewton. Mm. I know Chewton has uh, held you know that's kept the spirit of the diggers alive, and. Uh, we now own our swimming pool. The council doesn't own our swimming pool anymore. We were so successful that the council just threw up its hands and said, well, can't, you can have your bloody pool. <laughs> and we now own and run our own pool. And also, we have, um, we have control over the town hall and the post office and the land on which it sits because, um, you know, again, we just fought them to a standstill and said, no, 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 we're not going to do that. You can't do that. Sorry. You get it. And on so, Sunday... Yeah. On Sunday, 15th of December, the annual uh, celebration of democracy takes place in Tunton. Do you want to give us the details? Yeah, Sunday afternoon, 2 o'clock onwards. uh, Junior Ranger program for kids at 2 o'clock. 4 o'clock, big concert uh, uh, speakers. Um, We'll have Jeff Jones, the local, who was the local, uh, the editor of a local paper, speaking about how the uh, press in 1851 supported the miners and what it means now for press freedom now. And we'll have um, Rose Darling, uh, one of our, uh, our community leaders, talking about how we managed to stop the pool closure, how we fought the council to a standstill. And we'll have lots of uh, music. Uh, Jan Wazitsky, well-known uh, musician, uh, folk singer and uh, performer, um, and lots of others um, singing, music. There'll be a sausage sizzle. Park Victoria provides the sausage sizzle. Uh, at um, Golden Point Road in Chewton. Uh, so just come up from Melbourne, go off the uh, highway at Elphinstone, come up through, you'll see Chewton, uh, turn right into Golden Point Road, and there will be on the heritage-listed site. Two years ago, the government actually listed the site of the monster meeting uh, as a heritage listing because they realised the importance of the monster meeting in starting off the movement for democracy in um in Victoria. Mm. Okay, thanks so for joining us. Do want to know where uh, Eureka started? It started in 1851 at Forest Creek in Tudor. All right. <laughs> thanks for joining us this morning, Pat. Oh, pleasure. Thank you. Bye. See ya. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there, broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR, radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. You didn't answer. You're listening to 3CR, 855 AM, the voice of the community.
Out here, nothing changes. Is that you, Don? Not in a hurry, anyway. Is that you, Don? Oh, good. Hold on. Could feel the endlessness with the coming of the light of day. And yes, you've probably realised that Don Sutherland's on the line. G'day, Don. How are you? G'day, Annie, and hello to you and all your listeners. I hope you're all well. G'day, Don. Yeah, and uh, we've got great news for listeners out there because Don's uh, decided to join the um, Melbourne Coven Coven of uh, Workers' Rights Fighters. Uh, It moved from the uh, smelly Sydney, but uh, there is news from Sydney, as Stick Together pointed out. Uh, The MUA safety officers decided that uh, the smog was a workers' Uh, the fire, smoke and smog was uh, workers' business, didn't they, Don? Uh, it, they certainly have, and uh, as they certainly should have also, and as many other unions should also be uh, paying very close attention to what the possibilities are and the importance is of um, being able to stand up for members and potential members uh, arising from the air quality index, the, the record levels of air quality uh, hazards um, arising from the bushfires, which themselves are a product of climate change. Yeah, isn't the, that interesting that the uh, how workers need to stand up to be part of the, uh, as the MUA have talked about, uh, putting the justice in a just transition. It, it, workers need to be part of these decision-making processes. Well, it, it, it is interesting because there is not a single sign of any employer going onto the front foot to ensure the protection of workers' health and safety arising from the appalling levels and hazardous levels of smoke pollution arising from the bookshires. It has gone back, as usual, to a leading left-wing union, more than just a progressive union, a left-wing union, to say that this is workers' business and that we will use every tiny skerrick of the laws that are stacked against us to enable workers to take action that protects their health and safety for the immediate and uh, and into their future. So it, how did it, how did they do that? What did they do? How does it? What's the mechanism? What was what happened? Well, well essentially, there, to my knowledge, so far there are three different unions who are at the forefront of this issue of the, in other words, the side effects of uh, hazardous smoke pollution arising from the bushfires, and they are the Maritime Union of Australia Sydney branch the Electrical Trades Union, both nationally, and I'm not sure how much in the New South Wales branch at this stage, but also firefighters, um, union representatives themselves who were in Canberra uh, issuing a protest to the government that uh, uh, climate change is real and and saying that they will do their very best to fight the bushfires that arise from climate change or from any other cause uh, but that they're not miracle makers either. And that the government has to recognise that there is urgent and big action that needs to be taken to uh, slow down and prevent and reverse uh, climate change. But the MUA in particular, 
the way in which they dealt with was it was just the pure a pure expression of workers' democracy. So on Wednesday, uh, there was a meeting of the Port Botany Safety Committee, and that led to um, and the Port, Port Botany Safety Committee of the MUA consists of health and safety representatives who are elected from each of the terminals, and its purpose is to ensure that that wharfies, waterfront workers, can coordinate their struggles to ensure that they have high safety standards. In fact, they want the best in the world. The first thing they had to deal with was what's going on with the escalation into hazardous air quality as a result of the bushfires. They took... uh, They examined the evidence about relevant air quality standards, and I think... uh, uh, the air quality uh, air quality standard, uh, the hazardous index says as soon as it gets above 100, it's hazardous. Mm. It's about 600 at the moment. Oh, goodness me. About 30 cigarettes a day per person. <sighs> and so they said that's, da- that's dangerous enough to say that to put into action uh, that they then took back, back to the workers on site, at the, at the shop floor, if you like. And the workers spent the day discussing the issue and then asserting they will simply not perform unacceptable, unacceptable hazardous work in unacceptable hazardous conditions. And, of course, management pushed back and wanted to keep them working. And they said, no, they won't, wouldn't cop it. And so they have then been forcing management into negotiations to work out how, uh, what the alternatives might be. They have not gone on strike. They have, they have stood down, and I'm not sure what is happening today. But that's the state of play there. The uh, the ETU have uh, issued a statement, uh, a national statement, which is saying that um, uh, reminding workers that uh, they have they are enabled to take precautions to deal with poor air quality, which of course is more than just poor now. It's now in Sydney, it's at hazardous levels. That's the classification. And uh, they say that ETU members have their rights and they point out, firstly, that under the Work Health and Safety Act of 2011 and Section 84, workers have a right to cease work. Uh, and uh, they then uh, they say, and I'll quote it, a worker, this is from Section 84 of the Act, a worker may cease or refuse to carry out work if the worker has a reasonable concern that to carry out the work would expose the worker to a serious risk to the worker's health or safety emanating from immediate or imminent exposure to a hazard, end of quote. Um, The current Fair Work Act uh, does not define this type of action as industrial action. And therefore, arguably, and I'm sure some employer somewhere or some employer organisation is going to contest it, Oh, right. uh, that, that, but effectively, the idea is that because it's not defined as industrial action, it therefore does not come under the penal arrangements associated with unprotected industrial action. And, that, and associated with the provisions of the Workplace Health and Safety Act, then the workers are enabled under the Fair Work, even the broken rules of the Fair Work Act, to be able to uh, cease work in these sorts of circumstances. And then there has to be negotiations uh, to 
Does that mean that people will be paid for the time that they've uh, had to been unable to work? Uh, I, that's unclear at the moment, and I'm not sure there is nothing that's telling me at the moment about how the MUA in particular, given that they're at the front of this action, are dealing with that issue, but that's something we can follow up on. Yeah, I mean, I know it's it, 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 when when think people are in danger that that becomes uh, lesser, but it does actually have some effect on some people's de, uh, decision making. Yes, and the um, the I'm pretty sure that the stand down as opposed to cease work as opposed to a strike arrangement means that they are enabled to be paid. But I would like to double check that before uh, going any further on that. So. Um, the, I think the other angle on all this about the unprecedented nature of the situation we are facing associated with bushfires is that the escalation is exponential associated with climate change. So yeah, just earlier this year, the Interla- International Labour Organisation issued a big report called Working on a Warmer Planet. A very important report because... The content were the uh, product of consultations between not uh, between unions, governments and employers. And that is a global perspective on being able to deal with the increase in temperature and heat uh, and its consequences upon working day to day. So in other words, there is a very, uh, only one or two very distant uh, uh, references in that quite comprehensive report to the effects of smoke of air, on air quality. Yeah. And so out of the blue, out of the experience of bushfires, there is this new perspective uh, on top of all of the others that we have about the impact of climate change. And uh, the so the ILO is behind the pace. The MUA is at the forefront of showing that workers do not have to be victims of the situation. Now, the most serious situation then, of course, is for firefighters employed and voluntary who are actually fighting the fires. And we can just only wonder at this stage on the impacts of their courage and their bravery are going to be on their medium and longer term health. Uh, well, we'll, we'll need to finish it there because we've got hardly any time up our sleeve, but uh, well pointed, I'd have to say. Well, I think the final point is to ask your listeners to pay really close attention to what the MUA, in alliance with two or three other blue-collar unions, are saying about climate change. There is a wonderful report they put out, which you have already reported on, called Justice into Just Transition, and... Your listeners should pay attention to that and have a close look at what the MUA Sydney branch is now doing that is showing the way for workers' health and safety. Thanks, mate. Thanks, Don. And we have to finish it there, Marcus. Yep. Yep. We're going to go out with uh, Solid Rock, uh, Yotha Yindi, the treaty project, and uh, I believe this was actually sung at the... uh, uh, handing back or stopping of uh, people climbing uh, Uluru. Uh, this, this is the significance which happened uh, a couple of weeks ago, in fact. Out here nothing changes 
not in a hurry anyway. Could feel the endlessness with the coming of the light of day. Talking about a chosen place. They wanna sell it in a marketplace. Well, look out. Yeah, look out. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.